Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. We've been following the fortunes of Paul, who was in the temple, trying to prove his trustworthiness to the Jerusalem church when the mobs set upon him. He was rescued by the centurion from their anger. He spoke to them, making them even more mad. The centurion hauled him in to whip him and find out why he made people so mad. Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. The centurion said, okay, let's ask the Sanhedrin why you make them so mad. Paul goes before the Sanhedrin and sets off another bomb in there that makes them all furious with each other and with him. And so the Jews say, it's time to triple down. Let's just assassinate this guy and then we might have a little peace around here. So that's where we pick up the story Verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. Do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and bring mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him worthy of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the certainty of your kingdom. 
in the passage before us tonight. Open our hearts to understand the scriptures. Help us to enjoy the adventure and to see that you are a God of excitement and thrills. Much more that you are a God who protects your people. That you are a God who will keep your promise. Pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the keys to reading scripture particularly, perhaps, in the Pentateuch and in some of the other narrative sections of the Bible, is to understand the dynamic of promise and fulfillment. Typically, the way a biblical author works in telling a story, frequently, I should say, maybe not typically, but frequently, the author will give you some statement from God. And then he will give you a series of events that look like they're going to completely discredit that statement and make it impossible for God's promise to happen. Thus, for instance, God tells Abraham, this is kind of the the classic statement or the classic version of this pattern. God says, Abraham, you will be big daddy. You will have many children. The name Abraham means big daddy. God tells Abraham that. Abraham goes on for 20, 30 some years and has no children. He's getting into his 80s and he says, you know, most people who are going to have a lot of children have a lot of children before they're 90. And his wife says, well, here's my handmaid. Have a child with her. And Abraham does that. And God says, this is not the child. This is not what I was talking about. So thing after thing after thing comes up in the story to prevent the promise fulfillment. Abraham is told, you will have a child. And then, what happens next? Oh yeah, the king of the Philistines takes Sarah into his harem. Oh, whoops, how is Abraham going to have a child with Sarah now? A little tough to get into the harem. Well, and thing after thing along these lines takes place until finally, the promise is fulfilled. Isaac is born. Abraham, big daddy, has one legitimate child. And you say, that's the fulfillment? He's big daddy with one son? Come on, Abraham, you can do more than this. But God then fulfills the promise over many generations until we have the thousands of Ephraim and the ten thousands of Manasseh several generations down the line in the time of Moses with the blessings in Deuteronomy and so on. Then The promise continues through the ages, as the New Testament tells us, to everyone who believes in Jesus is now of the seed of Abraham. That is how he is big daddy. He is the father of the faithful, the father of a multitude of nations. Well, that is God's promise. That's how biblical narrative oftentimes works. So if you're seeing obstacles or things pop up, challenges that have to be overcome, You understand that those are not there because a scriptwriter needed to fill some screen time. Those are there because that is how God works. And so we have the promise in verse 11, which I should have read. We read this last week. The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Right? The pattern has been triggered. The pattern was already triggered. 
to a certain extent in chapter 19, when Paul resolved to go see Rome in 19, verse 21. And then, of course, he has to go back to Greece, go back to Turkey, go back to Jerusalem. And then, then he says, okay, after this, I'll see Rome. But as we saw in the letter to the Romans, I'm coming. I've just got four or five major trips in the opposite direction that I have to make first. But here, now, Paul's next trip by the middle of chapter 23 is going to be to Rome. Except obstacle after obstacle after obstacle manifests itself in the way of that promise. Jesus said, Paul, you'll testify to me in Rome. So what happens? Immediately there's a plot against his life. And then after the plot against his life is foiled, he has to face up to Governor Felix, who is a delayer and has no interest in settling Paul's case. And then he has to face up to Festus. And then he has to face up to Agrippa. And finally, three chapters later, he's put on board a ship right as winter is coming on and goes through shipwreck after enduring a two-week-long storm in the Mediterranean. So obstacle after obstacle after obstacle pops up in Paul's path because the narrator is inviting us to consider is God's promise going to work? Will God keep this promise? How can God keep this promise when 40 Jews are against it? When the synagogue leadership, the high priest and his cronies are against it? When Felix and Festus and Agrippa are against it? When the weather doesn't want to cooperate? Where is the promise of God? And the answer is that the promise of God is there the whole time and it will be fulfilled in God's good time. It's easy for us to shout that back at the biblical characters. Don't worry, Paul. It's just a two-week storm at sea. Don't worry. But when God's promises to us are on the line, sometimes we have a harder time saying to ourselves, don't worry, self. It's just a two-week storm at sea. It's just some turbulence on this airplane that makes you think that both wings are going to break off at any second. It's just a trial. It's just an apostatizing child. It's just a spouse cheating on you. Just your church blowing up. Just this, just that. God's promise is not going to be destroyed by this. Sarah's virginity will not be violated by the pagan king who spotted her and called her into the harem. And he'll be too busy four nights in a row. And God will bring her back out untouched. Whatever the case is, we see the certainty of the kingdom in the very narrative style that Luke deploys from here on out. God's promise, Paul is going to Rome, and the obstacles that keep coming up to try to stop that promise. There's a promise, there's a fulfillment, In between are the many slips between the cup and the lip. Luke isn't telling us all of this because he's some early version of Alexander Dumas or James Patterson. He's not trying to write a cheap thriller. He's trying to point to the certainty of what we've been taught about the kingdom of God. He's saying Jesus reigns and the existence of earthly obstacles to the plan and promise of God is not evidence that Jesus has stopped reigning. 
just because things aren't working out, are not working the way you would think they would work if an almighty God was orchestrating them in accordance with his promise, doesn't mean that God is gone, that his promise has failed, that his plan is not working. No, his plan is working. Christ reigns even over the Jews' plot to kill Paul. That's the message of this back half of Acts chapter 23. So, Jesus reigns. That's the program. Verse 11. Paul, you will bear witness to me in Rome. The enemies, though, come up with this ridiculous idiocy, the kind of things that's the stuff of late night TV or the opera stage, but this stuff happens not just in B-movies, not just in the brains of sci-fi channel writers, it also happens sometimes in real life. Paul derangement syndrome was alive and well in first century Jerusalem. Some of the Jews, obviously more than 40 of them, said, this is going to be a piece of cake. We can kill this guy before breakfast. We can do this before we have had our coffee. We don't need to eat. We don't need to drink. We'll have Paul out of here before this kind of fast even starts to bite. Well, that is completely ridiculous hubris that is going up directly against the plan and purpose of God. But that doesn't bother them one little bit because who do they have on their side? Luke just mentions the damning information that the chief priests and elders of Israel can be informed of an open conspiracy to commit murder. And instead of saying, don't do that, or even saying, go ahead and do that, but leave us out of it, they actually say, we'll go ahead and join your conspiracy to commit murder. There is absolutely no integrity left in the chief priest and his cronies. Right? Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, he is very much a whitewashed wall. So, the enemies make their plot. They say, summon Paul. He'll be unguarded going through the streets of Jerusalem, or at least he'll have a guard small enough that 40 of us can jump the guard and kill him, we'll make the assassination, we'll melt away into the streets. Piece of cake. Persecution is real, even when persecution is irrational. We read this plot and we're tempted, after we gasp, to roll our eyes and say, you people have no idea what you're doing. This makes no sense. Why would 40 people get together and swear not to eat or drink until they killed Paul? There's something fundamentally absurd about that. And yet, somehow, these men have gotten themselves into the place where they think that murder is more important than their daily bread. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Just a little warning that Luke throws in there. Give yourself to your sin... And soon you will quite literally be forgetting to eat or drink in order to do your sin more. Whatever that sin of choice is. In this case, it was hatred and murder. And they say, well, we don't need to eat, we don't need to drink. Murder is food.
food and drink to us. Well, that's the enemy's plot. Their irrational persecution. In other words, the application to us is don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but also don't say, this persecution can't be real. It makes no sense. Persecution can be real, even when it is irrational. Irrational persecution is sometimes the hardest kind to wrap your mind around, to submit to, to say, how can this be part of God's plan? Why would these people be acting this way? I don't understand. And the thing we don't understand, if there's something we don't understand in this world, it drives us nuts. How can this be happening? This makes no sense. Paul didn't let that bother him. And when his nephew comes, right? Paul doesn't say, no, I've known these guys too long. Of course, maybe that's why it made sense to him. Paul just says, I believe you. Let's try to do something about this. So the enemy's plot is there. The enemy's plot is foiled. And there are some very imaginative commentators out there who can get all kinds of uh, very exciting stories out of the words, when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush. And they can describe how he was perhaps already a member of the Sanhedrin at his tender age. And he was there and he heard all the deliberations. Or They can come up with all kinds of ways in which Paul's sister's son might have heard of the ambush. Right? Even Paul's family was known as big-time persecutors of Christians. And the, Paul's sister's son was invited to join the plot because he was known as somebody who would be eager to kill his own uncle for the sake of the cause. The fact of the matter is we have no idea how Paul's nephew heard. We don't know where Paul's sister lived, what Paul's sister was like. Virginia Woolf spends all that time writing about Shakespeare's sister and what sort of plays she might have written. No one, I suppose, has tried to write the letters of Paul's sister. Maybe someone has. But Paul's nephew hears and he goes straight to Paul and tells him, hey, they're going to kill you tomorrow. And then Luke gives us the whole thing. Paul calls a centurion. The centurion takes the nephew to the commander. The centurion explains the situation to the commander. The commander says, what do you want to tell me? The nephew tells. Why does Luke tell us the whole thing? Part of it, of course, is the suspense. Just to say, there were lots of ways that this information could have failed to reach the commander. Paul's guard could have been like, yeah, sorry, we don't talk to weirdos off the street. You want him to talk to the commander? Too bad. Out the door with you, nephew. But at every step, the providence of God allows the nephew to make it to the next official who will pass him to the one who can do something about it. The commander takes him by the hand a pretty nice commander. When I go have an interview with the Roman centurion, I don't really expect him to reach out and hold my hand and lead me into a quiet corner where we can have a little heart to heart. But that's what this Claudius Lysias does. He takes him by the hand and says, what do you want to say? And then when he hears the report, he believes the report. And he immediately says, Let's make 
this not happen. Let's get Paul out of here before he can be killed. And that was not the commander's only option. The commander could have said, Paul, you're on your own. I guess we know that all of this is just because you have some enemies in town, so you might want to leave town, but either way, here's the key to the handcuffs. You're free to go. No. Travel at your own risk. You're not my problem anymore. Or the commander could have redoubled the guards around his cell in Jerusalem and said, they tried to start any revolts here. I'll make an example out of all of them. He could have arrested the conspirators and said, we have credible report of a conspiracy to commit murder. You're all looking pretty hungry. I'd say that makes you guilty. And being a Roman, he possibly could have gotten them all locked away for quite some time, just on the strength of the word of Paul's nephew. But he doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he forwards Paul to the governor. He moves him up the chain. Not necessarily the most obvious thing that a man in the position of Claudius Lysias might do. Right? If you have a governor who is sort of your boss, you don't necessarily want to take your problems and shove them at him. It depends on what he can do about those problems and whether he'll take his problems and shove them at you. But Claudius Lysias, in accordance with the providence of God, makes it happen. It's another step on the journey to Rome, not in a way that Paul probably anticipated, or even could have anticipated when he heard about the plot. But that doesn't really matter because it's not Paul who's engineering his trip to Rome. It's the providence of God. Luke is telling us you can have certainty that the kingdom is real, that Jesus really reigns. Here's that certainty. Paul is delivered from the plight of being, being the victim of a murder plot. God was at work. No one could have guaranteed that this intelligence from the nephew would lead to Paul being shipped to Caesarea. But it happened. So, along with this night ride that he arranges, 200 horse soldiers, 200 horse, 70 spearmen, or 200 soldiers, 70 horse, 200 spears, all for one, one prisoner, Claudius Lysias sends a letter. Why the size of the forces? Commentators have lots of uh, fascinating guesses about that, too. Some of the leading ones are, he wanted to keep his forces in shape, take half the garrison, and send them out on a little ride, or he just liked to let his men have fun, or he wanted to make an overwhelming show of force and be like, I'd like to see 40 Jews take on 470 Romans. Not bad odds. Almost 11, well, more than 11 to 1. But then the letter, Claudius Lysias uh, fails to mention things like, I was going to whip him. Uh, you know, he just kind of lets himself come off as a pretty reasonable guy. But the main thing in his letter for our purposes is that just as Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. So Claudius Lysias says, I find no fault in this man. He is innocent, just like his master. The providence of God is such that Paul is going to Rome as a prisoner, not because he's guilty, but in fact, in a certain sense, because he is innocent. So, 
finally, there's due process of law. The soldiers take Paul. They bring him one night's journey to Antipatris, something like 25 miles up the coast towards Caesarea. And then the next day, they bring him on all the way to Caesarea, the regional capital. That's where the governor of the province of Palestine lived. And the governor gets the letter, and he seeks to establish jurisdiction. What province are you from? And Paul says, I'm from the province of Cilicia. So the governor says, well, Cilicia is kind of a ways away. The crime was committed here in my province of Syria, Palestine. We'll try your case here. I'll hear you when your accusers have come. We'll take you to Herod's headquarters. And there's due process of law. He's received as a prisoner, put away until such time as his accusers can come and face him. So what is Luke doing? Luke is telling us that Jesus reigns. Christ triumphs over enemies. He doesn't ever swing the camera back to show us 40 starving Jews. One wishes that he had done so. It just wonders a bit. Did these men break their vow? Or did they keep their vow? Either way, the outcome it makes them look bad. So Luke didn't have to tell us which one they did. But Paul is in custody and he's on the way to Rome. First obstacle is, as it were, down. He's not free, but Jesus is keeping his promise to bring him to testify in Rome. So how do we apply this passage? The major application is to submit to Christ because he does rule your life. He is taking you exactly where he wants you to go. So don't be fearful. Don't be worried. Don't be upset when it looks like you're going the wrong direction. Christ is in charge. Paul didn't throw a fit and say, how does this get me to Rome? Really, you sent me 50 miles away to Caesarea? And I'm going to sit here for two years? I could have gotten to Rome faster by walking the whole way. Paul submits to the Lord, and Luke is telling us, the kingdom is certain. Jesus reigns, and he reigns in his own way, on his own terms, in his own time. So because he reigns, we should obey him. We need to put away our sins, pursue holiness, We should certainly not take wicked oaths and vows to destroy the lives of apostles or anybody else. That's an obvious one. We should value and support due process of law. Due process won't just happen. Claudius Lysias sent 470 soldiers to make it happen because a mob was going to beat Paul to death otherwise. Jesus reigns. He reigns over wicked people. He uses good people and good laws to carry out his will. He's your king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord of our lives, Lord of our circumstances, Lord of our fate, Lord of history. We ask that you would help us to trust him, that his lordship is right and that he is using it rightly, and that you would help us to submit to him and obey exactly what he tells us to do. Father, we thank you that you delivered Paul from the mob and from the conspirators. We pray that you would continue to deliver your people. We pray for the persecuted church, that you would use your power to protect them 
and to bring them safely to your heavenly kingdom. We ask that especially for the church in China and in India and in Arabia and in other places where the church is seeking to grow, where the state is actively opposing it. Father, work things out for the sake of your people, for the sake of your promise. Thank you that you kept your promise to Abraham, that he is the big daddy, that he is the father of a multitude of nations now, that you kept your promise to Paul and that he came to Rome, that you kept your promise to Christ and that he rose from the dead, and that you will keep your promise to us. We pray these things in the name of the risen Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.